Dr. Kiari Kershaw is a social epidemiologist whose research focuses on how social environments impact health, particularly cardiovascular health. This episode, we hear about Kiari's motivations in becoming an epidemiologist, her perspective on the pandemic we find ourselves in, and her research on how race, segregation, and various social factors can influence cardiovascular health. Joining us to help out with the interview is Kiari's younger sister and Jerry Kershaw. To our listeners, I just want to say thank you for listening. It means more than you think. Here are Kiari and Jerry. Cool. Well, let's get started. Uh, let's start with where you're from. Oh, that's a funny question. Because <laughs> um, my sister and I think we're from different places. But uh, we I was born in Washington State, but when I was five, we moved to Ohio. So that's where I would say I'm from because we lived in a small town in Ohio. Um, from first, lived there from first grade through ninth grade. So most of my um, schooling time. Um, and then we moved to New Jersey while I was in high school. What, what part of Ohio? Worcester, it's called. It's in Northeast Ohio. It's, um, it's probably, what, 45 minutes from Canton. Um, but, but it's kind of the middle of nowhere. We were the county seat, you know, Monday fair day off kind of thing for the first, yeah, Monday of the fair. Um, not not a big town. Wow. So you say Ohio and Jerry says New Jersey. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, where'd you go to school? Um, so I went to undergrad at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Um, and then after that, I went to University of Michigan for grad school. Um, I went there for, this is the part where I'm the professional student. I went there for, um, a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences, but then about three years, probably honestly about one year into it, I was like, ah, I don't think this is the right uh, program for me, but then, you know, tried to stick it out. And then three years in, I just was like, yeah, I'm not really interested in this. And I really wanted to do something where I saw myself helping people more. Um, so I went around and met with people in different programs in the public health school, school of social work and social, school of public policy. And then just process of elimination ended up in the School of Public Health. I was really bad at economics, so didn't want to do public <laughs> policy. And then um, social work, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't do that one. I, I, I really liked math and science, and epidemiology is a good way to use both. We do a lot of statistics, but then it's kind of embedded in biology. So um, that ended up being a good spot for me. So I switched programs about three and a half years in to the other program, and then did my master's and my PhD all at the University of Michigan, all in Ann Arbor. So um, in the end, until now, that's the longest place I've lived anywhere, longest time I've lived anywhere. Um, so I'm a wow. Wolverine for life, go blue. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's it, yeah. And then I, so, yeah, and then I guess, yeah, go ahead. Um, so did those first three years of pharmaceutical science, did, did a lot of that material transfer over uh, to public health? No. No, it was pretty different because um, I was all I was in a lab there, and so I think one class transferred over, um, and probably most importantly, my funding transferred over. <laughs> so oh. it allowed me to still go to school for free. So that was the most important part. Um, but yeah, no, not the time really um, started. Over. So you you essentially were restarting. Uh, yeah, and that was a, a master's degree or the the doctorate. It was the doctorate program, but I left with a master's degree. Um, so yeah, so I did get that out of it too, but I don't really use it at all. Um, okay. 
I mean, and, I'm sure I use it in some way of like learning how to solve problem solve or something. Oh yeah, I bet. That. Yeah, and you <laughs> never know. <laughs> right. It seems like pharmaceuticals are important, an important area right now. Anyway, um, they are. Yeah. yeah. Let's rewind to uh, undergrad. At, like, did you know that you were into biology, science, that kind of stuff? No, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, which that is not the best place to be when you don't want to know what you want to do. Um, because a lot of people want to be engineers or computer scientists, and I was just kind of trying to figure it out. Um, so I went in for psychology and then um, really liked cognitive psychology and then thought, oh, okay, I want to be a neuroscientist. And so then I became a biology major. Um, and then that's how I ended up wanting to be in a lab. So yeah, no, oh. so I didn't really know what I wanted to do <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> I didn't know that at all. Oh yeah, yep. I yeah. thought you just went in and were computational biology all the way. No, no, the computational part I got because everybody was doing computer science and I was like, sure, let's do this. And mm -hmm. it went well for the first two classes and then <laughs> kind of tanked after that. That was not my uh, strong. <laughs> What's y'all's age difference? Uh, three, yeah. It's like two and a half years, right? Yeah, two and a half years, thank yeah. you. And which one is older? I'm Kiara. older. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're three grades apart, but yeah, I think we're more like three years, yeah. Okay, um, cool. So you didn't know exactly when you were an undergrad. Was there a, a time between undergrad and, and Michigan, uh, between Carnegie no. Mellon and Michigan? Or you just no, go straight I went into straight it? in, yeah, yeah. Okay, there. so you really have been a full-time student. Oh, yeah, yep. Yeah, no, it was about 10 years straight or so after, at, 10 years after undergrad, so yeah, a long time. <laughs> wow, so, yeah. Um, so uh, this public health, is it like a doctorate in public health? No, no, no. Oh, yeah, right. Good question. Yeah, I know it's a doctorate in epidemiology. So ep epidemiologic science, I think officially, but yeah, so that's what the PhD's in, but it was it was in within the School of Public Health, which has about five different programs that you can get your PhD in. Okay, and um, when you when you did that PhD, did, did you have to like choose a specific track or area to specialize in? Yeah, I mean, we have our dissertation, and so within that, there are specific areas you can focus in. So mine was in social epidemiology, so kind of um, uh, social factors like socioeconomic status or um, race or um, uh, neighborhood conditions, which I do a lot on, how those influence health. So that's more focused on different um, exposures. And then I also focus on chronic disease epidemiology. So that includes cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, Alzheimer's, dementias, things like that. But I, but I, my research focused more on cardiovascular disease. Mm. And that's, isn't that like the number one killer in America? It is. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great thing to be researching. Yeah. Yes. Always, um, always uh, unanswered questions there. So. so what is something that you don't think the average person knows about the intersection of like cardiovascular health and let's say race or demographic or, uh, you know, any, anything that you think that someone off the street might find interesting? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So cardiovascular, so I guess one thing, um, there are these really large disparities in cardiovascular disease by race. So black men and women are way more likely to develop cardiovascular disease and have worse outcomes. Um, 
than, uh, than whites are. So are South Asians. So Indian, um, Pakistani people from South Asia are, are much more likely and at younger ages too. Um, and we don't really know why. I think people have you know, gone down the genetic pathway and haven't really figured that out to be the cause. Um, but then we also know that they have worse risk factors because the thing with cardiovascular disease is that there are these kind of they call them life simple seven america's heart, american heart association calls it that we we know a lot about what causes cardiovascular disease a lot of non-genetic things that you can change that are lifestyle related but then also kind of like high blood pressure um uh, diabetes things like that we we know more about i think what causes cardiovascular disease than most other diseases um but can't seem to figure out how to reduce those long-standing disparities that exist mm. so do you think that like solving heart disease is more of a, an epidemiological problem or like more of a social problem that's a great question uh i actually think it's a social problem um that there are certain kind of root causes that influence kind of who gets what resources or um or kind of yeah i guess it is resources but knowledge about you know what behaviors to adopt or then also kind of money to to do certain things like eat um healthier foods or or time to exercise um i think yeah a lot of the issue is not you know what causes it but how we can help people make healthier choices like what what's missing there um i mean everyone's diets are pretty poor i mean mine has gotten especially poor lately but that's kind of a universal thing but um some of those other risk factors are definitely managed better in certain groups than others okay so the the cardiovascular health thing that i've seen whenever i see maps of the world it's always like the other countries are kind of like faded out and gray and then America is like big, dark and red. Like, <clears throat> why are we, do you think, why is America like this anomaly of like high rates of, you know, cardiovascular illness? Yeah, I mean, especially for, yeah, kind of our stage of development. I think, um, I mean, I think a, a good chunk of it, not all, but a good chunk of it is lifestyle. I mean, I think we can, um, we have, higher rates of obesity, uh, which is a big one, because uh, that's a big risk factor for high blood pressure, diabetes, um, which factors for cardiovascular disease. Um, there's, there have been a lot of studies on dietary patterns, so kind of the bad diet is the Western diet, which is really <laughs> the US diet. Um, so I think um, there is, and then the good diet is the Mediterranean diet. So, um, so some of that falls in there, so I think, um, it is probably lifestyle. I'm sure stress plays a role. You know, we have probably all work not too hard, but you know, really hard. And there's a lot of stress around around that and kind of how we manage that could be part of it too. So, okay. So most of your studies have been like chronic illness related uh, yeah. as opposed to, I, what's the other, is it viral or? Infectious, yeah, infectious disease epidemiology, which is okay. yeah, what we're seeing now, people now. I don't want to grill you about like everything that's going yeah. on if it's not really yeah. in your if you're in your area of study like is it ignorant to say that a lot of the knowledge that you have from chronic illness epidemiology transfers to uh infectious epidemiology i mean kind not not it's not the same i mean we we learn all of that i mean because um 
in theory, I mean, I study who gets a disease and why, but when it's chronic, the way it's transmitted is very different, right, than, than when it's infectious. And I think that's what we're dealing with now is trying to understand um, the pattern of infection. And so we don't run models like that to try and understand who gets cardiovascular disease. Um, so this is, this is uncharted or different than um, chronic disease epidemiology in that sense. Like we wouldn't mm. track it like this. It's, um, it's interesting that you say transmission because I guess for chronic diseases, transmission would be something like somebody learns a lifestyle from their parent and then they grow yeah. up and get the same diseases. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Because there are a lot of shared environment studies that show that, um, or there are some which are debatable, but these kind of social network ones, like can does obesity transmit across friend networks and things like that. Um, but it's still not really the same, you know, because there's not some agent that's being passed around. Um, but, but yeah. Okay. So with that difference being there, how do you, what do you think of, uh, the recommendations and the guidelines for like the coronavirus sheltering in place and all the stuff that they, that, that they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I, first of all, defer to them, you know, I think that they, they know what they're doing, but it, but it makes sense. I mean, I think for, as a chronic disease epidemiologist, I hadn't thought about all of the um, variables involved or this whole idea of flattening the curve is not something that we think about, but I think it does make sense if we want to, avoid overwhelming the healthcare system, you know, that we do need to um, delay it. I mean, it's not necessarily going to keep a, a lot of people from getting the disease, but the idea that we can delay it and slow it to a rate at which people can be treated and hopefully don't have to share ventilators or people don't have to make decisions about who they're going to give one to or not, you know. Um, so I think anything we can do to keep that from happening is worth it. Mm -hmm. um, have you noticed any changes? Uh like in your in your area in your school or in your program specifically are that are coming about as a result of the coronavirus well i mean we're not as, we're not at work but and i think everyone even our chronic disease epidemiologists are are switching gears to try and figure out how to kind of do research on COVID-19. Um, so there are all these rapid response grants from the American Heart Association, like what is this due to heart disease? You know, because they are, they are related or they could, not, you know, they could affect long, they have, could have long-standing outcome, adverse outcomes, you know, that are more than just getting this um, infection. Um, so it just seems like everybody, I just reviewed a grant application for our department, or for the our translational center about that too. So it's just, everyone's trying to figure out a way, a role they can play, I guess, mm -hmm. um, to try and understand what's going on. Cool. Um, yeah. it, so as this has been going on, um, I think there's like a prevailing sense that it's a temporary problem and we just kind of have to hunker down and get through it and uh, we'll come out the other side and it'll be fine. Um, but it, will COVID-19 still be around and still come back and come back in waves uh, just like the flu does every year, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I do think that by doing this right now, um, it'll give people time, hopefully time to figure out a treatment, because um, that's the thing, like that's a big difference. So flu comes every year, but we have a guess at what strain it's going to be. So there's a vaccine, you know, and then there's a way to treat people if they have it. So, I mean, lots of people still do die of the flu, but it's not like this where 
there's not enough tests to know who has it, there's no vaccine to prevent it, and we don't have to treat it, you know, it's like the worst combination. So I mean, hopefully this time will allow them to, to get that part together, at the very least to delay infections, but I'm hoping, but I'm a, very much an optimist, but I'm, I'm hoping that they'll come up with some kind of at least a treatment um, and or, you know, a way to test people so we know um, uh, if we're even infecting people and not realizing it, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, so speaking of, and I don't want to like get too into politics, but but what, how, what has your impression been as an epidemiologist of the government's response to COVID-19? Yeah, I mean... I think I think it's getting better, but I think it was delayed. Um, it was too delayed, and and they didn't put enough. I think by trying downplaying it so much, it made it seem it made it hard to respond in the way that maybe would have been, or that definitely would have been more helpful um, to have kind of responded earlier. Um, there were I think mistakes made along the way, right? With um uh the test you know like why because maybe because people were slow to respond we didn't seem to to feel a need to take the test that's that the world health organization already had developed so then we had were delayed on the test so i think there's just been a series of um missteps um mm -hmm. on the part of the government that that made the problem worse i mean it sounds like it would have still been pretty bad but it did i don't think it helped at all and it gave people the impression that it wasn't real you know and so many people still think it's not real um and that's hard to undo it's really hard to undo that kind of damage yeah i mean there are still like pictures going around of people like all hanging out together at like churches or at picnics like just yeah in super close proximity yeah um, i think yeah it and somebody was telling me like it's probably just gonna be it's gonna feel like something that's far away and doesn't apply it to people until somebody they know gets it or is yeah. affected by it and then all of a sudden it'll become real but for some reason it has to kind of actually affect somebody to become like present in their mind um, yeah i think so so <laughs> Jerry and I have been working together for almost a year now, and so I, uh, I, I think I know why you jumped into uh, cardiovascular disease epidemiology. Uh, do you want to tell us what uh, drew you to that? Well, there, there are a few things, but I think a big thing is um, in our family, a lot of people have um, some cardiovascular disease risk factor. Um, I mean, I started this even before, uh, well, it's funny now I think about it, it's probably close to when my dad had his first heart attack. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's one of these kind of persistent problems that tracks by race, even if you um, become higher income. I mean, I think even that kind of, you would think as people, um, uh, I don't know, make more money or um, or become more educated that these that they would be at lower risk of these diseases and it just doesn't happen and it just shows what a tricky problem it is. It's also a very silent problem, you know, so a lot of you don't know you have it. I mean, I don't think, for example, my dad who he had his first heart attack in his mid 50s, um, hadn't been to the doctor in probably at least a decade was just kind of like and has insur had insurance, you know, 
professor at university insurance and just didn't want to go. He's like, oh, do you want to get bad news? And then had a heart attack and found out that he had high blood pressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol. You know, just kind of walking around with it and had no idea. Knew he was feeling bad, but didn't really, you know, know what to attribute it to. Um, so it just, I think it's a it's a, it's a complicated issue because it, on the surface, you're like, okay, we know what causes it. Why is it so bad? Um, but there's just unwrapping kind of what um, causes the causes is really interesting to me. Um, even if it's, it feels like a hard to attain goal, but it just seems like a worthy goal. Do you think human behavior or habits are improving? Uh, in the fight against cardiovascular disease, or do you think we've just basically become who we are and we're we're kind of staying uh, still? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I, I think that um, uh, technology and our ability to treat disease or tr and definitely treat risk factors, like for example, high cholesterol, statins are these amazing supposedly wonder drugs. Um, I think that's gotten better at a faster rate than people's behaviors have changed, like our habits. Um, I think, you know, there are uh, some trends that I think are, are showing improvement. I think I want to say that obesity rates have just kind of plateaued for a while now. Um, but those behaviors, yeah, they're really hard to change. Some people do, and we all know a story of someone who did, but I think by and large, those habits that you adopt as children or in um, young adulthood, you seem to kind of keep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm very interested. How did you make the leap from being a professional student to actually having a, a job? What was that transition like? <laughs> it was hard, man. Being a student is so fun. Um, yeah, <laughs> but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, so I, so my husband moved, he took a job in Chicago while I was still finishing my PhD. So then I finished it from here. I just lived here in Chicago. And uh, during that time, met somebody who um, was at Northwestern. And she actually just was on one of my, this is a weird thing. You can, there are some of these, the data that I work with, they're uh, collected at multiple sites. And so when you write a paper about it, you add people who you don't necessarily ever see. But um, I, so I had never seen her before, but I was at a conference we met and she told me about this postdoc program, um, which isn't school, but it's kind of like school for two more years. Um, and so that eases you in to real working life um, where you can just go for a couple of years you don't take classes, but, um, you know, you work on papers and you try and decide, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, and then, so I did that for two years and then I joined the faculty, um, at Northwestern. And the nice thing about being on faculty there is that it even still feels, sometimes I call it going to school, you know, even though I'm not taking classes anymore, you're still in that academic kind of environment. It's a little bit different. I'm at the medical school, so it's different than, than where I was before, but, yeah, so I think that made the transition easier. I I, can't, I have to do this at least once or twice. Uh, I just want to say sorry, Kiari. No. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I haven't heard. I actually haven't heard that in a while. But uh -oh. yeah. <laughs> Wait, can you explain that? <laughs> Man, I think well, it's rhyming, let's, right? let's let in Jerry come in. <laughs> so I loved apologizing to my sister 
just yeah. because it would rhyme. So I, I wouldn't necessarily mean it. When I was younger, I would just always be like, sorry, Kiari, sorry, Kiari, because it was fun and it rhymed. So I could say it. And it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> too, Kiari. It, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it is fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, and Jerry, uh, you've learned at least one thing about your sister that you didn't know uh, tonight. Uh, do you have a question or two for her? Um, if you could, what, I guess, what kind of data would you want to see from COVID? Like, would you want to see any data from COVID that you would want to use in your research? Yeah, I mean, so as a I do a lot of research on uh, neighborhood effects on health. So how, how, where people live affect their health. And, and then also, of course, disparities, like I said, um, I'd be really interested to see where within cities. So I'm on, a, I'm on a project where they're looking at counties, but I think even within a city, you know, where are the cases um, uh, occurring and are they spreading faster in certain parts of the city than others? And, and, and how does that relate to the resources that are available there or crowding, overcrowding? Um, I think there's been some reports in, in New York about um, kind of large um, immigrant neighborhoods where it's spreading faster there. And I don't know if it's, you know, um, how knowledge is transmitted or just that they are gets in one part of there, there are five people living here, you know, there are five people living together in my house, but like, it's like 10 people living together or whatever, that, that it just spreads through people a lot faster. So I'd be interested in, in, in at a city level, kind of what's going on and where's, what's the pattern of, of transmission. Yeah. And then long-term effects. For sure. Long-term effects. Yeah. I think they're, they're, a lot of people are interested in that and cardiovascular and lung health. So the part, um, the, uh, long-term lung respiratory effects and cardiovascular effects of, of, of COVID, yeah. So your research in, uh, like you said, it was neighborhood effects on health. Um, yeah. Does that involve you ever actually going out to neighborhoods and talking to people and gathering data that way? I do some. Um, yeah, no, most of my work is with existing data, but we've collected some data in Chicago. Um, it's usually like more of a structured kind of meet with people in, in the neighborhoods that they live in, but that's been a really nice part of the work I've done lately. And just, it allows me to focus on Chicago and really understand um, the different neighborhoods and kind of what the different problems are or, or kind of assets that different neighborhoods have, like the character and, and how that kind of shapes um, lifestyle. You know, some places are much more walkable. I mean, Chicago is generally walkable, but some places are more walkable. Some places have trans public transit, so it's really easy to get to work from there. And other places, you you really can't get around very easily. Um, crime is mm -hmm. a very big issue in Chicago, of course, um, which also relates to cardiovascular disease. So I don't have a PhD, but um, this dissertation thing—you have to make an argument, right? Yeah. Is that mm -hmm. okay? Um, tell us a little about your dissertation. <laughs> I have to and make arguments all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, that's more Jerry. Jerry's better at that than I am, but <laughs> I'm just uh, working on it. Um, uh, no, uh, so yeah, so mine was looking at, um, it was still this kind of where people live and how that influences um, their likelihood of uh, developing hypertension, so high blood pressure. Um, so I looked at it, a big part of what I do is looking at racial and ethnic um, residential segregation. So kind of these um, 
policies that that kind of targeted um, blacks so that that it was harder for them to kind of move into suburban areas or move into certain neighborhoods and kind of the long-standing effects of those on health um, and so I was able to use some really good data sources that weren't designed to look at those things, but I was able to add address information, or they had address information, but add information about where they lived. So whether they lived in a racially segregated neighborhood, what was the level of neighborhood poverty, things like that, um, to, to really look at how that influences, or if someone lived in a more segregated neighborhood, were they more likely to have high blood pressure and things like that. Um, and we also have looked at if people move from more segregated neighborhoods to less segregated neighborhoods, what happens to their blood pressure? And it's shown that it lowers their blood pressure. Um, so that's kind of some of the ways we can make that argument that, that where you live matters and still trying to figure out why, or really more importantly, what to do about that knowledge. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a lot of what my dissertation was about. And so that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, especially the part about, I, so if you're, to just to repeat what you said, if you're if you're in a more segregated place and you move to a less segregated place, uh, the trend is that your blood pressure will decrease. Yeah, yeah, and I mean this is all we do our best. You know, we used it's all called observational data. So I mean, we ask people. We didn't specifically say, you know, we don't know. We can't randomize them to move or something. That would be the perfect study, right? Do we know we assign some people to move and we see what happens to their blood pressure? So we can really just observe that people who did move to less segregated neighborhoods also had reductions in their blood pressure. Um, but the cool thing about that study is that we used data on a group of people that were followed for 25 years um, and we compared their blood pressure at the time when they lived in a segregated neighborhood to their blood pressure later on. So we're comparing them to themselves at least, um, which is kind of a stronger design if you're going to be using that kind of data. Um, mm. So that was a pretty cool study. So I mean, getting a data set that's 25 years old, or I know, and then I know that there are some that are even older than that. Like who are yeah. the heroes on the front lines that like every year or whatever, for 25 years, make sure that that data is getting collected? Yeah, no, I mean, there are great, um, I guess, project coordinators and things like that who are the ones that really make those repeated calls. I mean, these people, that study, they collect data every five years. So they come in in person every five years, but every six months they're calling them just to keep track. You know, how are you doing? Is it still your correct address? Has anything, have you had a, um, a heart attack? Have you had a stroke? Things like that. And then they kind of verify that. Um, so it's a lot of effort. There are these huge NIH contracts, uh, National Institutes of Health contracts, um, that go into this and they do it at multiple sites so we're just one of the sites where they do that but they have that study has five sites i think four or five um where they're all coordinating it um so it's a it's a huge undertaking and mm. at this point they're just hoping to keep it going you know because once you've done that it takes obviously 25 30 years and they're into year 35 about to to keep it going so the hardest part is really yeah just to keep those people that participate. So I guess those are the real heroes, right? To keep to keep doing it after all this time. They were 18 to 30 when they started and they're still doing it. Mm. Um, so it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And like sharing your data with, uh, I don't know, some academic institution, I guess that can be intimidating. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I had a question about another cardiovascular question. Um, so when I was a kid and still 
to an extent when people talk about heart attacks it's kind of like someone got struck by lightning or like uh got into a car accident it's like oh man that sucks like i can't believe that happened whereas based on what you're saying it sounds like like heart attacks and uh strokes can be more um attributable to the causes from which cardiovascular disease develops as in there's more like you can see more of the cause and effect more like smoking equals lung cancer so someone gets lung cancer and they've smoked their whole life you're like okay well you uh you smoked your whole life so that kind of makes sense i mean it sucks and i'm sorry that you have lung cancer but it kind of makes sense do you think that first of all that might be a bad analogy like lung cancer to to heart disease but do you think that that holds any merit like hey there's a very direct cause to this heart disease that's happening and do you think that it's worth changing the conversation to be like hey um instead of it being like a lightning strike that's random and out of nowhere it's more like this event that is the precipitation or of all these other the accumulation of this kind of, of yeah yeah no i think that's a good analogy i wasn't sure at first what um you meant by it but then they, yeah yeah it's not a random i mean there are they're like acute or sudden death you know or whatever but even those aren't all random but um and i think some organizations are trying to change that conversation the american heart association does a lot to try and they have this whole they have this whole life simple seven campaign like okay we know these things and i don't think the evidence is as um strong as lung cancer or smoking and lung cancer you know those are what that's like one of the few epidemiologic kind of um successes for chronic it's so hard to yeah really prove those kinds of things i think smoking cardiovascular disease you could probably say too the other things I think there's really good evidence um, that they cause them, especially the accumulation. Like if you have five of the seven, you know, your risk is double or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, so they do try and, and, and let people know that, yeah, this is what you need to do, you know, this healthy lifestyle or whatever and get your, num- know your numbers, I think is part of their campaign. Like, mm. you know, just knowing where you are, um, so that you know, if you have pre-hypertension or pre-diabetes, you can start kind of acting right away. And so that's, I think there is effort there. But yeah, it's definitely important to do mm-hmm. it because yeah, it's not a random occurrence. Yeah, I feel like people, everybody knows in their in the back of their mind, like I should exercise and I should eat right and I should make sure my cholesterol levels are low and all that. Uh, yeah. But then they get a heart attack, and I just feel like there's a disconnect where it's like, oh man, I got a heart attack, that sucks. But then there's not like this. Oh, it's because I didn't exercise and I didn't do this. And I didn't yeah, do that. Yeah. Well, um, you know, maybe I think part of it too is that um, a lot of people don't eat well and a lot of people don't exercise and not, it's not like a one-to-one, you know, it's not like everybody who doesn't exercise gets a heart attack. It's still a rare mm-hmm. event, you know, it's still not, um, yeah, I wouldn't call it common. So I think it actually by epidemiology would still be called a rare event. So I think that's the thing. And that's, that's why it's these hard I think that's what's hard about it too versus even smoking right i mean not everybody smokes especially now right mm-hmm. um so that can be maybe a stronger association so i think that might be you know we all know lots of people who don't engage in a healthy lifestyle and aren't going to have a heart attack right it's there, there's still like a degree of rarity to it even though yeah <laughs> there is i, I mean it, yeah i think that's probably part of it so what are the uh some of the seven factors or if you can name them all yeah, this is like a quiz. Let me see. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so there's there's diet, which is hard to measure, but they have this healthy diet score, I think, with these five 
I think it's like eat a lot of fish and um, uh, some other things. That won't count as not knowing seven. Healthy diet is one. Because <laughs> um, I can't remember all the parts of the healthy diet. Um, okay. But vegetables, fish, like minimal processed meats or no processed meats, I guess. Um, and then um, uh, physical activity. Uh, so meeting the physical activity guidelines, which I think is 150 minutes of moderate activity or no, no. Yeah, 150 minutes of moderate activity or 75 minutes of vigorous activity a week. Um, BMI less than 25. Uh, blood pressure less than 120, I think, is ideal. Is ideal. Um, but blood pressure is the other thing. Um, cholesterol, I don't know what the cut point is at for that. Diabetes. Um, gosh pressure diabetes oh cholesterol oh no did i say cholesterol already yeah i did yeah hang on so you got diet blood pressure cholesterol exercise bmi bmi under 25 so weird diabetes you said diabetes right did you say diabetes diabetes okay so we're at six now so diet blood pressure cholesterol exercise bmi diabetes smoking 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 oh wow it's one of the seven don't smoke. Yeah, that's a big one. And I just couldn't think of it. I was like, I don't know, there's another lifestyle one. Yeah. So those are those life simple seven. They, yeah, and so they have ideal cut points. The thing is, so only I think less than 1% of adults meet that um, threshold for ideal and the biggest fail is on diet. So mm -hmm. they don't even necessarily treat it as like now they've been treating it as a continuous kind of score as opposed to meet these cut points because nobody meets those cut points. Um, but it's mostly diet and it's, you know, you can probably just kind of try and do the best you can with diet. It's really hard um, to have an ideal diet. Um, you, you say nobody meets those cut points, kind of like you're resigned to the fact that Americans are just going to be American, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, it's the diet is what makes it less than 1%. And anything where the prevalence is less than 1% feels kind of, it feels a, a little futile to be like, you know, we need to, um, we do need to do better. But I think that there may, there's, there's got to be some kind of intermediate goal, you know, and, and probably more work to understand where that falls so that it maybe is a little less stringent. But yeah, I'm a little bit resigned, especially in that side of it. Mm. but access to the diet too right yeah it's access but i mean it's universally bad you know i mean yeah there's definitely people are doing worse but they're nobody's doing really well um so it's kind of like well what what should we be doing exactly so i think that that's a spot where you just need some practical guidance which i think there's a lot out there diet's hard too because yeah everybody has to eat right but um, you don't have to smoke you don't have to be physically active you should but then if you have to eat it's hard to figure out you know, it, it's hard to make a good choice all the time. Mm. Yeah. So in your body of work, like, you know, Kiari in 20, 10, 20 years, what, what problems are you hoping to solve? And I think I understand it at a general level, but there is, any, is there anything specifically that you want to like, you know, get into and solve? I mean, I think I want to get more into understanding the role or impact of different policies on health. Um, so a lot of the work I do with segregation and even kind of the way you're talking about access to grocery stores and stuff, those changes happen at the policy level. Um, and right now we don't know what 
the best policies would be. You know, we, people have done that with the, the supermarkets. I mean, the supermarkets make sense, but I think for different reasons than people think. And we need to be there to evaluate that and really understand, you know, what are the long-term effects of these kinds of things? Even if we don't see these changes in diet that we expected to see right away, are people making more money? Are their homes worth more? You know, and that brings them more wealth, which allows them to make better choices. You know, I want to know more about how those things work and what policies we should be trying to advocate for. That seems like a very like policy oriented. Uh, are you like, I don't know, I don't know if epidemiologists are like a category of people, but like, are you like more on the policy side than average or more on the social side than average, would you say? I'm more on the social side than average for sure. Yeah, I would call myself a social epidemiologist and I think those people are more on the social side. The policy side is newer because yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I would be more evaluating policy anyway. I mean, I think it's always hard when you're doing the kind of the science part of it to do be too much of a policy advocate, right? Because you wanna be objective and you see what mm -hmm. you see in the data, right? And make sure that you're not um, kind of thinking you know the answer before you test it. I mean, even if you think you know it, just don't be, want to be swayed or seem like you're swayed. But I think policy evaluation would be important. And there are some epidemiologists who do that, um, uh, evaluating different policies. And I think that's where I'm kind of heading at least. Mm. Um, so if you're evaluating policy, uh, you would take all of the bulk of the knowledge that's in your brain and in the whole uh, epidemiology, epidemiology ecosystem and be like, this is a good idea or this is not a good idea. Uh, what if like at some point you have an epiphany and you're like, I know the perfect policy that would make you know Chicago, let's say, that would just change Chicago and make everything so much better. Would you like uh, approach, I don't know, legislators or, cause I feel like the, the, the role of an evaluator is like, you know, you wait for them to come to you and you tell them whether it's good or bad. But since you're the one in all the research, maybe you have come up with a really good idea. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Yeah, I think I think I would, and I think some people do. Some people work more closely with, um, especially their um, local health department. So um, that happens a lot in the New York City Public Health Department, where they work with um, researchers in public health or epidemiology, um, a lot of epidemiology, I guess, uh, and and say they say, hey, the evidence is suggesting this, and the health department's like, okay, well, let's try it, you know, and they try it, and so they. Um, you know, what happens when we put fresh fruit in the in the convenience store, in the corner store, and if we put it right at the counter, like, I, I don't know if you've seen that, you know, when you go, and there are bananas and apples there to buy, mm -hmm. will people buy them, you know, so that's kind of a policy evaluation, but that would be something generated by evidence, right, so if we see people don't have access to food, what's a way to give them access to fresh fruits and vegetables in an easy way without building a grocery store, you know, that could be something generated from epidemiologic research that someone then takes to the health department, but then they try out and can mm. expand. Um, having those partnerships, you can at least understand what kind of evidence do you need, you know, and so that you can give them more useful evidence um, mm. so that you can do that. But yeah, people do that. And I, I could see myself doing it if I thought I had a really good one or wanted to kind of go down that path. Yeah. I, I mean, I could see you running for president, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah, <right>. uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Gary, I'm sorry. He says that to all the guests. <laughs> <laughs> love yeah. it. I love it. No one Paul's has ever said that to me. So <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. too nice to run for president. She can't <laughs> run for president. Both secure, yeah, and too honest. <laughs> so um Paul Paul has a question that he likes to ask, but before that, yeah. I want to ask one more. Did you 
ever think, uh, because you seem very people oriented and like, you know, socially motivated and like you want to help people. Did you ever think like a uh, doctor as a profession um, as opposed to epidemi- epidemiologist? Yeah, briefly, I did. I did. Um, but I think I am a little bit, I'm not squeamish anymore, but I think I was the idea of that part of it, the blood part, I guess, uh, was too much for me. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was more it. And I really liked the re- I really like research. I mean, I do, I do like people, but I actually really like working in my office and on my, behind my computer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if I'd be good. I'm sure I would be good working with people all the time, but yeah, I'm also very good at being, um, like kind of working independently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, Paul, you there? Yeah. (laughs) I'm ready when you are, man. So uh, we're, we're shifting gears in a major way here, Kiari. Okay. Uh, by the way, Jerry, have you listened to any episodes of this podcast? <laughs> You're not, it's all good. I'm not putting you on the spot. We ask a question in almost every podcast. The uh, situation, and you have to choose uh, one thing or the other. You're 25. You're not married, no kids, just you you have to worry about. Uh, and you, you're looking for a new direction for your life. So maybe a next step that would be exciting or interesting or set you up for future success. Do you join the military for four years, your your branch of your choice, or every week for six months, write and deliver stand-up comedy routines? You did apply to West Point. I got into West Point, yeah. But yeah, you know what? But then what did I do? I went to the... There was some kind of what was that? Like a it was like a fitness day, wasn't it? Fitness day. Yeah, I don't know if it was part of the admissions or what, but it was this fitness day or something. And I remember um that there were was I the only there were very few females and then I was like, Yeah, it just this isn't intense in a way that I um am not. Yeah. <laughs> I think you know, and I'm like a very I mean I'm not always nice, but I'm a pretty like upbeat kind of, I don't know, person. Um, and there are just some things that I think I don't want to know, you know, I mean, I can see them on TV or something, but I don't really want to know how to shoot a gun or, you know, really hold a gun. I've never held a gun, you know, I, I just don't want to do that. So I am, I am not funny and I don't think stand up would go that well, but I would rather do that and just painfully suck it up every week. All to avoid going into the military. Totally. totally. That's so funny. Most of the time guests are like, they either choose one or the other. It's never that they like take the less bad option. You know? You oh, know? really? They would love to do one of those? Yeah, no, no, no. Right. It's like a positive thing for them, but it just seems like negative for you all around. Nope. Yeah, I would, I would not be happy with either, but uh, I could choose that one and be, you know, I would survive. <laughs> Because Yuri knows I'm not, I'm really not. <laughs> just like, imagining a Like a complete, like, I don't know, missed the punchline or something. So. Her stand-up comedy, one story would be about an hour long. And she'd be like, well, wait, let me, I didn't tell you this part. Let me go back. I got to go back and tell you this part now. <laughs> this <laughs> totally. Part. Yeah, nope. Yeah. 
Wow. That's funny though. Yep. <laughs> well, hey, uh, Jerry, do you have any more questions for your sister? Um, are you are you staying sane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's. I'm trying to put it in perspective. Each week gets a little bit better in some ways. Like I'm resigned to the fact that I'm not going to be as productive as I was. Um, and, but it's it's kind of it's nice to see spend more time with the girls overall you know they fight and then it's kind of annoying but um but it's fun to kind of help them with some schoolwork and um just take it easy as long as they don't stress too much about the work part then it's not bad i mean yeah it could be worse is what i keep thinking you know um we're all healthy so i don't know tell us about your family uh so i have three girls they're uh 10 7 and 5 um and 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 a husband i was forgetting someone um yeah uh you know that happens uh so uh yeah so they're they're good yeah they're great they're um they're each uh different and 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 fun in their their different ways um my oldest uh likes to go horseback riding so she she um rides um three times a week and that's her activity and she loves that my middle one's basketball player and then my little one is just a diva she just kind of bosses everybody around um yeah i love it yeah that's fun your youngest sounds like uh jerry's youngest yes yes (laughs) Very much so. She likes a, um, a McKenna too. Yeah. Um, very much. Yeah. She'll teach her bad things. <laughs> she's a lot. She's cute though. She's been, you know, one of those who's been dressing herself since she was three in these outfits with all this, you know, um, bling, like plastic bling, of course, but, you know, just very into fashion. Jerry, what about you? What about your family? What about your kids? Um, so I have a five-year-old and a, she'll be two in May, um, and a husband. Um, nice. Yes. I remembered him. My, <laughs> and his name is Ben. So Ben and Jerry. Just, it was oh, I love it. Yeah. It's perfect. <laughs> marry somebody named Ben or Tom. Yep. That was yeah. the only two. <laughs> no one else. Um, my five-year-old is great. Him and, um, he like loves my sister's middle kid. Um, yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. But he's great. Um, my youngest, as Paul has mentioned, is a bit of a spitfire. Um, she, (laughs) she, uh, will jump off the couches. She'll do all kinds of things. I've been in her presence once. It was actually in my office at work and she, uh, there were, I don't know, three or four people in my office and she took over the place. Yes, she did. I could see that. <laughs> well, no. Kiara, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time, so I really appreciate you coming on. Jerry, thanks for uh, setting this up for us. Uh, yeah. We had a good time. I know Daniel did too. And I, hope I you sure did. Oh, we definitely did. I definitely did. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Awesome. We got more timely than we thought, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs>